Local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you had a wonderful, long, oh, not long weekend, just a regular weekend. What was I thinking? Uh, hope you had a great weekend. Uh, we got a great show to get you going on your Monday morning here. Uh, it was a beautiful morning here in Kamloops, but now it's clouded over. That weather forecast uh, looks like it's going to come to fruition with some rain and, uh, coming our way, perhaps. But uh, that's not a bad thing, especially on the wildfire front. A uh, real pleasure to be joined, as we are every Monday morning, uh, by Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Good morning, Kyla. How are you? I'm all right, Shane. How are you? I'm good. How was your weekend? Uh, it was good. I got a lot of, a lot of work done. <laughs> I would expect nothing less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not. You've got to take some holiday time. You're going to burn yourself out. I'm, I'm going away in August, so. All right. For how, what, two days? No, for four. What? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Good for you. Hey, um, there's uh, Global's done a really good job of sort of highlighting this issue and diving into it. We've got a case uh, that's actually popped up in Chase, close to us here in Kamloops. Uh, but what's essentially happened is you have some people that have some uh, pre-existing conditions, medical conditions. They have some breathing difficulties, things like that, uh, and they apparently really struggle with the breathalyzer, uh, and that has resulted in several cases. And the most latest in Chase, as I mentioned, with a gentleman named. Jimmy Forster, who was stopped, uh, pulled over for uh, for an impaired driving check. He says he just struggled uh, to get uh, to blow into the device, couldn't get it done, didn't register a reading. So uh, technically, he has broken the law. Uh, he had his car impounded. He's gone through the whole rigmarole. He's frustrated, uh, and now he's joining this constitutional challenge. So, uh, from your perspective here, Kyla, um, what's going on, and, and how do we remedy this situation? Well, I think. The, what's going on is that the government has empowered police with a very poorly drafted law that allows them to randomly ask anybody they want for breath samples. And the result is that people who are not consuming any alcohol and not doing anything wrong, who never would have been targeted under the old law, are now coming under police scrutiny. And we're starting to see some of the flaws very early on in the system of randomly checking drivers for alcohol alcohol impairment without any basis for doing so. Now, in this case, Mr. Forrester uh, is, is saying that he told the police officer in question, listen, buddy, I've got asthma. Uh, this may be an issue for me. This did not seem to register with the police officer who actually uh, hailed this whole thing as a great chance to use the device and use his new uh, new policing powers. Uh, is I mean, I don't know what the, what the legalities here are. If you're pulled over and, and you say, hey, listen, officer, I'm uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to blow, but I, I actually suffer with asthma or whatever your condition is. Is there a legal imperative for the police to follow up on that or give you some flexibility or what? No, there's not. And that's one of the, the greatest problems that we have now with the way that this random breath testing is being deployed, particularly here in British Columbia. Because here we punish people immediately at the roadside, like Mr. Forrester was punished, um, on the basis of their failure to provide a sample into the device, whether or not it was intentional. And then the burden is on you. If you go to the superintendent of motor vehicles, the burden is on you to prove that you didn't intentionally fail to provide a sample and that you had a reasonable excuse because of a medical condition. But if the police officers 
don't believe you at the roadside, which it was clear this officer didn't in this case, and they craft their report to the superintendent to say, oh, you know, he was faking it and, and he could breathe just fine and he was yelling at me so I could tell that he was um, able to take in deep breaths and expel good amounts of air, the adjudicators aren't going to accept your evidence. And this is a consistent pattern that we've been seeing. So ultimately, it, it puts a burden on the people who are most negatively affected by the law and the innocent people who are affected by the law to go to significant expense and significant trouble to challenge a law that was should never have been enacted in the first place. What role, if any, do doctors have in all of this? I mean, should people walk around with a doctor's note? Uh, it's, I don't think asthma is serious enough, but are their breathing difficulties serious enough where, where a doctor potentially should say, okay, maybe you shouldn't try? I mean, what's the role of a doctor in all this? The role, doctors have sort of a dual role. On the one hand, doctors can provide evidence to support these people's cases. You know, if somebody has COPD or, um, you know, or lung cancer conditions like that, that would obviously make their breathing very difficult. Um, a doctor could provide information to support the person's case with the superintendent of motor vehicles. Unfortunately, in my experience with my clients, lots of doctors are very reluctant to get involved in legal processes. They don't understand the way that the immediate roadside prohibition hearing work. They don't understand that they're not going to be called to court or cross-examined or asked to follow up, that they just need to submit a letter confirming the diagnosis and how it impacts the person. Um, and so they don't get involved, um, which leaves these people essentially without any corroboration of their conditions, um, you know, throwing up their hands and saying, you know, help me, superintendent of motor vehicles, which, you know, as we see with, with Mr. Forster and previously with um, the Norma McLeod case, doesn't work very well for people. Now, Norma McLeod's an interesting one. Uh, she blew numerous times, couldn't make the machine register. She actually went out uh, and, and got a doctor to produce a note saying she couldn't physically breathe hard enough to pass the test, still failed an appeal. I mean, this is a lady who suffered from mouth cancer, wears some kind of mouth device, has uh, COPD, uh, respiratory illness. You would think that there might be something there that would stand up in, in the court of law or the basic decency of, of common sense to make somebody go, okay, we need to deal with this case a different way, but apparently not. No, there's a lot of cynicism when it comes to people who claim that they were trying to blow and that there was something that was preventing them from doing it. A lot of people are very cynical about that because they figure that uh, that it's not that hard to blow into breathalyzers. And I've seen numerous um, police reports and had numerous clients report to me that officers tell them, it's so easy, even a three-year-old can do it, or it's so easy, my 80-year-old grandma can do it. Well, I've tried to administer the test on my grandmother who's in her 80s, she cannot do it. Um, my my colleague Paul Doroshenko's tried to administer it on his children who were older than three. Um, they could not do it. So, I mean, the police get all sorts of misinformation about these devices, which gets passed on to the people who are in the decision-making um, power, and it, it creates this cynicism that it doesn't really matter what's wrong with you. You should be able to blow. Okay, so how do we... I mean, obviously, there's a constitutional challenge, so there's a, there's a legal mechanism or hopefully will be a legal mechanism to address this. Um, perhaps you change the law, do you put in exemptions, how do you differentiate from a police officer perspective, uh, somebody who has legitimate you know, issue like an asthma or a breathing illness from somebody who's you know, read some news stories and is going to try and BS their way through this thing. How do we navigate all of these things? Well, I think 
part of it comes down to a responsibility that's going to have to be placed on the police. If the government wants to keep the random breath testing law, and I don't think they should get to, but if they want to keep it, they're going to have to show that they can use it in a responsible way. And so when it comes to people like this, reprogramming the roadside breathalyzers to uh, have a manual sampling function. The old device that used to be used in British Columbia had a button that you could press that would take a manual sample. So if the individual was struggling to breathe or having difficulty providing a sample, you could override the automatic sampling requirements of the device and manually capture that sample. They deprogrammed that for the device that's currently used in British Columbia. So it's a simple matter of changing the programming and eliminating these types of situations by giving the police a tool necessary to capture the breath sample. Um, on the device side, I mean, we're aware of the deep flaws that exist with the device, the Draeger Drug Test 5000, so much so a lot of police forces are saying no thank you. Uh, as you and I have talked about in the, in the past, we have another device, the Sotoxa device, which is somewhere in the approval process. Um, how much of this is on the device that is actually capable of factoring this in or dealing with people with these, if that's even a possibility? I have no idea. Well, a lot of it really is on the device. On the roadside breathalyzers and on any of these devices, they're only done um, annual servicing once a year. So that means that any changes to the sampling requirements, any adjustments on the calibration of, of the things that trigger a sample being accepted are only done one time a year, which, which means there is 364 days during which something can go wrong and continue to be wrong until it's going to be detected. I, I think there should be a greater responsibility on police to have these serviced and, uh, and checked more frequently. The manufacturer recommends um, doing calibration checks on roadside breathalyzers every 28 days. Um, the manufacturer of the Drager Drug Test 5000 for some reason claims that it never requires calibration, which to me is, <laughs> is absolutely bonkers, but that's their claim. I think we need more obligation on police to be checking these devices more frequently and disclosing more information about the checks that they do. Uh, last question on this topic. Um, constitutional challenge itself has got a bunch of people have signed on, including uh, the gentleman near us and Chase. Uh, chances of that succeeding in your mind? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I might be biased on that because one of the people that signed on to that constitutional challenge is somebody that I'm representing. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I think we have a very good ch a chance of success here. Um, we have uh, a number of these, these two individuals, Norma McLeod and um, Mr. Forster, are very uh, sympathetic individuals and represented by uh, Jerry Steele and Jen Terran uh, in Victoria. My client is somebody who was uh, arbitrarily detained for a very long period of time before the police finally administered the test, which is completely contrary to the law. So we have good sets of facts um, that, that ground these challenges. And I think that's what the courts really are, are going to be interested in, is not just the, the um, impact of the law, but the facts of the people that were being impacted by it. All right. Uh, Kyla, are you good to, to hang tight for another segment? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show on Radio NL, and we'll continue our conversation with Kyla Lee right here on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Uh, Kyla, you and I have talked about this uh, here and there in our time together on, on this show, uh, and that's been uh, with the advent of legal cannabis, sort of a, a, the wave of 
of drug-impaired drivers that some were predicting prior to legalization simply has not occurred. However, we're getting some fresh news out of Edmonton where the police there are now saying uh, that they saw, what, 53 drug-impaired drivers uh, since legalization, so about six months or so, uh, which is a bit of a wave, and I believe numbers that weren't there, you know, a week or two ago, suddenly they're looking at a bit of a spike, and they were predicting uh, things are going to get worse. So what do you think is going on here in Edmonton? I don't know what's going on with Edmonton because they really seem to be bucking the national trend, which is no spike uh, in cannabis-impaired driving. Um, I would hazard that this has to do with the police using more of the investigative tools that have been um, available to them since the law changed, having more officers trained in the drug recognition evaluation program, using the um, the uh, roadside uh, testing and having more officers trained in roadside testing. Um, either SFSTs or the drug or drug test 5000. And I would guess that that's the reason for the spike. But I think if you actually surveyed drivers to determine whether or not they were driving more after consuming cannabis than they did before legalization, you would probably see no actual spike in the rate, just an actual spike in the number of arrests. Now, they're saying they're crediting, um, they're quote-unquote, tracking it better and crediting a poly-drug approach to enforcement. Um, I haven't found anything that really clarifies what the hell a poly-drug approach is. I assume it's a standard drug test, but um, does any of that sound familiar or pass muster with you? I've never heard the term poly-drug approach, but to me that suggests that they're looking for people who are impaired by a combination of drugs, which isn't surprising. We see a lot of um, instances where somebody might have used cannabis, but they're also using cocaine or smoking meth or injecting heroin or doing any other, you know, any other type of drug out there. And it's really the impairment is not coming from the THC. The impairment is coming from the harder drugs that they're also taking at the same time. Uh, the other claim on this particular story was, uh, and it's coming from the chief of police there, saying, well, listen, we all know there's a supply problem among the legal cannabis uh, chain. Uh, there's not enough in stores to get all these products there. And he's predicting that uh, that once the supply reaches out and maximizes itself and we'll have tons of product and stores will be packed and then thus there'll be more marijuana going out the door, that the problem facing his detachment is going to increase radically. Do you buy into that or no? I don't buy into that because there might be a, a supply problem when it comes to legal cannabis, but there's not a supply problem when it comes to cannabis. There are plenty of places in Edmonton and everywhere else in Canada to get cannabis that's not legal. Um, and so I don't think anybody who wants to use it is really prohibited from accessing it simply on the basis of the fact that the legal stores are having trouble keeping it in stock. I do agree that we're going to see bigger problems when it comes to cannabis impairment and driving as um, the year progresses, and that's related to the legalization of edibles. Yeah, and you and I talked about that uh, last week. It's going to affect people differently, and, and there may be some issues there. Uh, we'll have to see what happens come uh, late in the fall when edibles hit the shelves. Um, we only got a few minutes left. I do want to cram this in. Uh, there's been sort of an overhaul of the criminal justice system, something I know you wanted to talk about enshrined within Bill C-75. Uh, it has passed, uh, will be in effect soon. Uh, what's your take on this thing? As I assume there's some pros and cons. There are 
are there are pros and cons. On the one hand, um, we're now seeing lots of um, eligibility for conditional sentences, so house arrest coming back. Um, lots of sentences, maximum sentences have been lowered, and offenses have been characterized as hybrid as opposed to straight indictable, which opens up the options for people. But there are a lot of downsides. They've eliminated preliminary inquiries in all but the most serious uh, charges and really rare charges, too, that people never seem to be facing. Um, and they've also increased the amount of time that the Crown has to lay a charge um, if something is prosecuted summarily, which is going to have huge impacts on questions about court delays. Now, why are, why are preliminary hearings so important? Why is eliminating or downsizing them an issue? That's the, the manner in which somebody who's accused of a crime says, before we take this to trial, I want the Crown to prove that they have sufficient evidence to even make me stand trial. And the prosecution has to come out and show that they can produce some evidence that, if believed, would prove the essential elements of the offense. It's a good opportunity to test the strength of the Crown's case, and it serves as a, a gatekeeping function to keep cases that are going to take a long time and that are going to have really hotly contested issues from actually making it to court and wasting court time if they can't be proven. Now, court delays have been a big issue in this province on a number of fronts. Will this, I mean, it sounds like if I'm reading between the lines of what you're saying there, this is not going to solve that problem, but I'll, I'll let you answer that. Is that going to address it or no? It's not going to address it. The reality is that preliminary inquiries save court time in the end, and very few um, cases ever have lengthy preliminary inquiries, much less preliminary inquiries at all. Um, and so for the ultimate saving of, you know, maybe 100 days of court time in a year, uh, you're costing hundreds of days of court time every year in long trials that are going to run because the evidence isn't properly tested beforehand. Now, one of the pros, at least from some, will be the potential for longer sentences for some crimes, though, yeah? Uh, I mean, yes, I suppose. Some people are, are you know, happier about the idea of having more, um, uh, more penalties for people facing offenses, broader definitions of what constitutes um, assault causing bodily harm. Um, these, a lot of these changes are touted as, as helping people who are uh, vulnerable in an abusive relationships. Um, so there are, you know, there are some positives to that, but I, I just don't see the positives outweighing the negatives uh, in the long-term effects on the administration of justice. Now, you're much more an expert in all things legal than I am, which is why I have you on, but uh, if this bill misses the mark and there are things within the criminal justice system that need tweaking and changing, reforming, uh, what did this bill get wrong and how, how in your opinion, should it have uh, instead reformed itself or tackled the problem? I think they should have imposed more of a gate keeping function on judges in scheduling to determine whether a preliminary inquiry is really necessary and to limit the number of witnesses and the manner in which evidence could be presented in preliminary inquiries. There were already those powers. They just needed to make them more available to judges. And that would have solved their concern about wasting court time with prelims while still allowing people to have them so that court time isn't wasted down the road. Um, when it comes to increasing the amount of time to lay a charge in a summary offense, I think that never should have been done because it's effectively an end run around the Jordan decision, where the courts now can't look at the amount of time that it took to bring something to trial because they've got you know a huge amount of time to lay the charge beforehand, um, and the Crown and the police can just delay laying the charge in the first instance so that people, um, uh, people can take longer to be brought to court, but that that time doesn't count against the government. And Kyla, we're out of time. Uh, it's been a pleasure. This will be our last chat, uh, at least for a while, I hope. I hope we will have a chance to talk again, but I'm departing at the end of the week. But it's been a real pleasure, and thank you so much for all your time over the years. 
Well, thank you, and good luck on your new chapter in your life. <laughs> and if you ever decide to take some legit vacation time and feel a need to go to Scandinavia, doors always open. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's Kyla Lee from Acumen Law. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we're going to shed a little light on uh, what looks like a rather disturbing story about a newborn uh, seized by Kamloops Ministry of Children and Family Development staff uh, from Royal Inland Hospital. I'll get the details on that next. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion, call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we're putting a story under the spotlight that is a little disturbing. It should have been the happiest day in their lives, a First Nation couple showing up at Royal Inland Hospital here in Kamloops. Uh, they're going to give birth. They do give birth to a lovely little baby girl. Uh, and then a short time later, um, that child is seized. And there's some kind of talk about uh, Ministry of Children and Family Development staff here in the province of British Columbia uh, getting some kind of report and neglect and acting on it. Uh, the story was broken by the Aboriginal People's Television Network and from their host of their show, In Focus, Melissa Ridgen joins us now. Good morning, Melissa. How are you? Hi, Shane. How are you doing? I am well. Okay, shed some light. This, As I said, this should have been the happiest day in their lives. They, they welcome Absolutely. a daughter into the world. Uh, and then within 90 minutes, um, MCFD staff show up to try and take the baby. They're fended off, but two days later when the mom's sedated and trying to recover... Uh, from the rigors mm -hmm. of childbirth, uh, she wakes up to find that her baby girl is gone. And I, I can tell you, I got a four-year-old boy yeah. myself. If I was in that situation, yeah. I would be insane with rage. Um, what what it's, is going it's on? It's incredible. Well, so and this is a, these are first-time parents. Um, there's, so this isn't somebody that uh, has been in the CFS system. So there's not red flags from you know they've got kids in care or whatever. These are first-time parents. Um, there's allegedly a report of some sort while the while she's pregnant that uh, this child would be in in danger. Ninety minutes after her C-section, so major surgery, uh, CFS comes saying we've got, we've come to take this baby now. I've had a C-section, and I know, you know, the recovery, you can't right. move. You're, yeah. you're strapped down to a bed. You've got IVs in you. Yep. Luckily, huh. the uh, maternal grandmother was there to say, like, no, you're not taking this baby. We've got to figure out something. So fended them off for two days. Um, by all reports from the family, there was not effort, serious efforts to be made. It, it seemed like the, the, the tracks had been laid for what they were going to do, which was to apprehend. They'd set up a meeting uh, to come back two days later, show up two hours late, and the doctor had sedated the mom. Um, you know, the family has some theories as to whether that was coordinated or whatnot. There's no proof of that. Um, but it does make you wonder, um, you know, what's going on that there's, what is this evidence that has convinced you that there's this high risk? If it's just a, of somebody phoning in with an anonymous tip, I'm sorry, that's not, that's not evidence that require you could investigate, but there's been no investigation. There's just been this tip and you've acted on this. Now, the BC Ministry of Children and Family Development says they only apprehend in instances where the baby is at a very high risk for injury or death. So the question is, where did you get that evidence to, yeah. to label them with that designation? When the baby was only 90 minutes old, you already had your mind made up. Yeah. Do you, To the best of your knowledge, do you know if there's any prior contact with uh, the agency and the family? There's nothing? Zip zero? No, they have no other children. Yeah. Um, 
I, as you know, because we exchange emails on this, uh, I, mm -hmm. I read your story with interest. I fired off an email to the Ministry of Children and Family Development. Uh, and kind you of had said, the same canned yeah, answer that yeah, I did. Exactly. And uh, um, they ran down a bunch of speaking points to me. They won't budge off of that. Mm -hmm. But essentially they're saying, kind of reiterating what you just said, we act when there's a case of danger. They invoke privacy laws. Um, exactly. Well, I, and these privacy laws are increasingly, I'm, I'm you know, I've been a journalist for 22 years yeah. and uh, oftentimes have said, you know, you get these calls of, of CFS things and you're like, you know what, I can't, there's nothing we can do because of these privacy laws. And they say that it's to protect the families and the children, their privacy. But increasingly, as a professional covering these things, I'm, I'm really starting to look and go, who do they actually protect? Because as, as, as an onlooker into this, it seems like the only one that it's protecting are the agencies that are doing these things and this is happening across the country we know this to be true this has come up in the truth and reconciliation report this has come up in, in the final report of the missing murdered indigenous women and girls you're taking children from indigenous families across this country you're ruining the family fabric and then you're just spitting them back out into the world and then you're taking their kids kids we know this is happening and it is happening across the world this isn't specific to bc it's not specific to kamloops this is happening across the country and uh increasingly you know, people are paying attention to this. It's like, this is like, we had the residential schools, then we had the 60s scoop, and now we've got CFS that's doing the exact same thing. We are living in a time that, you know, we all look back with this degree of shame on, oh, I had no idea residential schools were happening. Yeah. We look back on that and, and with shame, and as we should. But it is the same thing is happening now. It's just under the guise of CFS. Uh, these, these apprehensions are, are questionable. So many of them are questionable. There's two things I want to get into. I'll leave the latter for just a second. But the first one I want to get into is um, the one thing that really interests me about this is that there's no unanimity among um, professionals who, who, who specialize in the field of, of child care here. Uh, I note in your mm -hmm. story you say that the, the Schwetmick Child and Family Services, uh, who, who I guess in the aftermath took a bit of a, a, a social media beating, and then they came out and said, they did. this has nothing to do with us, so that we, we refused No, they in fact service. refused this case. Yeah, they so refused to get involved. They looked and went, there's not grounds to, to be apprehending a, a baby from the hospital, ripping her yeah. from her parents' arms. They yeah. refused to get involved and, in fact, are helping, uh, reportedly, helping the family uh, in their dealings with MCFD to get the child back. And William, a couple of Williams Lake social workers where the child apparently is in foster care right now have also mm -hmm. sided with the family. So we have people Correct. people who are experts in this field who are saying we have concerns here, something's not yeah. right, and we're siding with the family. How much of an alarm bell does that set off for you? Uh, all of the alarm bells. But at the same time, I'm not shocked because I've been covering this pretty consistently since last December, like I said, across the country, and I'm hearing this. And I've actually got social workers who have uh, come out, uh, come on my show to say, you need to understand that this, this whole premise that we are trying to keep families together and doing helping parents uh, keep their kids, they're saying that that's not the case. That's not the reality on the ground. That's not what they're dealing with. They're seeing social workers who uh, want to apprehend. That's, it's apprehend first um, and keep the kids in the system as long as you can. Don't forget, this is an industry. Jobs rely on this. And there are social workers who say that it's, kids are just used as, as kind of pawns in this. You know, you get them into the system and there's a whole bunch of uh, jobs and programs that rely on those kids staying in care. Now, the, the people who oppose this, of course, say, why can't those same jobs be available to help parents keep their kids? Like, if there's legitimately a concern that, you know, we, we want to help these, these people be better parents, why don't you help them do that? Why is it to apprehend 
and then help other people raise these kids and have all these programming available for the kids only if they're in care, not when they're with their families. Yeah, the big thing I want to get into with you is that, um, as I mentioned in the, in the email from MCFT, they, they mentioned privacy laws. Now, uh, to be mm-hmm. fair, there are situations where you want children to not be in the situation they're in. There are parents out there who are not good parents, uh, who put kids in situation, and we want to safeguard against that. But what what yeah. my concern was with my back and forth with MCFD is I think there's an obligation to assure the public and to confide in, especially the family involved, that there mm-hmm. is a legitimate situation or a reason that they took the child. And I don't mm-hmm. get the sense that that reason has come out because they're just hiding behind privacy laws. How do we exactly. change that so that we have uh, we have our responsibility to children, uh, especially getting them out of awful situations, but we also have uh, and follow through on an obligation I think should be there to uh, mm-hmm. to say to somebody, yeah, this is the reason, this is the deal, here's the family, this is why we did it. So there's some measure of culpability, some measure of transparency to say, okay, that's a legitimate reason, or no, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there needs to be some sort of evidence that there's been an investigation that's taken place before you've apprehended you know, and secondly, if you wanted to say, okay, well, while we do this investigation, we still need to ensure that this child is safe. Why aren't they going to the families? Why isn't it families or extended families or close friends that are that are caring for these children while this investigation takes place? We're not seeing any evidence that this is happening. It's just apprehend first and then throw a bunch of hoops up under the guise of investigating. They make, I mean, in, in Manitoba, we've had kids that are apprehended. And without any evidence, just like we believe that your children are at high risk, they take the kids and they say to the parents, you've got to take all of these courses through us in order to get your kids back. Well, to me, that's you're making them take courses when you haven't established that they even need to. You But while they're taking those courses, those children remain in care. Those families remain torn apart. So if you're saying I, you, we want to make sure that you're a good parent, we haven't established that you're a bad parent, but it's going to take you six months to, to prove or a year to prove that you're a good parent. And you have to take these courses through us. Unbelievable. You know, it looks, it looks, the optics of that are like, so, you know, who do we care about here? These, the people who have the jobs in these programs, great that they've all got this work to do, right? Yeah. You, you throw a couple hundred people through there every few months through these programs and then give them back kids that have now been damaged because they've been taken, ripped out of their family home. Uh, last question, uh, at last word, how's the family doing? I talked to uh, the grandfather on the weekend. Um, he said, you know, it's stressful. This is, is there, there's a shell shock. They're bombshelled by this. They went and they did get to visit with baby H uh, late last week. It's a one hour, or a, sorry, half an hour walk from where the parents live. And of course, you just had a C-section, so you're not moving quickly. They showed up and it was two or three minutes late, and they were told if they ever show up late again, there will be no more visits. Mm. So, you know, it's just insult to injury. They've got meetings this week with the agencies. Uh, they've got mediation. They've got a court date set for June 27th. They're hoping that it's resolved then. Uh, but the grandfather said that, you know, the CFS remains, uh, in his words, they're playing games, which I hear consistently across this country for, and it's like the little hoops they make you jump through. And we all need to be cognizant that why, why are the parents expected to jump through these hoops? when it, there, it's questionable in the first place that the agency even took these kids. Yeah. It's, it's offensive to think about. And, you know, if you are white and middle class in this country, this is something you'll never have to worry about. They prey upon primarily low-income people. Certainly they love, you know, immigrants are vulnerable, First Nations are vulnerable. That's, that's how they get the kids in these systems, and everybody keeps their jobs, and they prey on these people. They wouldn't push this uh, if you were 
white and middle class because you would you wouldn't stand for it. Your lawyer would be there hmm. chewing down their throat. Melissa, thanks for taking a few minutes talking about a tough but important thanks. subject. I'm glad that you guys are covering this out there too. Yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, please keep us in the loop about further developments. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Shane. Yeah, cheers. That's Melissa Ridgen. She's the host of In Focus on the Aboriginal People's Television Network, which broke the story about baby H being taken shortly after uh, being born at Royal Inland Hospital here in Kamloops. Certainly a lot of question marks around what and exactly the hell is going on there. So we'll keep you up to the loop on that. I'll take a quick break. On the other side, Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West joins us. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Pleasure to welcome to the program this morning the Mayor of Port Coquitlam, Brad West. Good morning, Brad. How are you? I'm good, Shane. How are you? I'm well. Last time we tried to get you on, you were a little under the weather. Everything okay? I'm, I'm back to almost 100%, so good. thank you for asking. <laughs> That's good. Glad to hear it. Hey, uh, you uh, you got some limelight over the weekend, uh, raising the alarm bell over what you're calling a cash for access event. I was previously unaware that China put on such an event uh, every year at the Union BC Municipalities Annual General Meeting. Uh, they apparently mm-hmm. host a little reception, uh, and they also cut UBCM a, a bit of a check. Now, um, there's been a pretty significant reaction to your complaint this year, and among them, uh, a call to boycott the event itself. I'm curious what you have seen that you both like and, and think is progress, and what you've seen that you uh, that you're not happy with in, in all of the reaction that's unfolded since. Well, I, I think that this is a really important issue. So I have never attended the reception that the government of China puts on at UBCM when I was a city councillor previous to becoming mayor. And I raised concerns that at that time as well about the, in my opinion, the complete inappropriateness of accepting cash from a foreign government, uh, particularly one with the record of the government of China. And we can talk about that in a moment. But really, the principle here, in my view, is that mayors and city councillors, area directors, what have you, are elected to serve our communities. We're elected to make progress on issues that impact our communities within the municipal realm. So roads, parks, housing, garbage, snow removal. What possible reason could there be to rub shoulders with the government of China to accept their freebies other than the other than what the government of China gets out of it, which is uh, a, another step in their well-documented attempt to um, expand their influence and, and grow their uh, soft power. Yeah. Uh, a concern, by the way, which has been raised uh, by the, the former head of CSIS uh, 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 and is well-documented um, from a number of folks in a number of different countries that this is, this is part of what the government of China does. So there's all of that. I, I just believe um, from a, a principal perspective that um, mayors and city councillors are elected to work for their residents. They don't need to be going accepting freebies from a foreign government, any foreign government, period. Yeah. You layer on top of that the record of the government of China. Mm-hmm. So as we speak, they've got two of our fellow Canadian citizens held hostage. Yep. They just plucked them off the street one day, you know, on trumped up bogus charges. 
as a retaliation for what's been going on with the Huawei executive. Yeah, Meng Wanzhou. Just, exactly. So just take, you know, one day decide, oh, we're going to take those two Canadians and we're going to detain them. They've got them in some rat hole where they have no access to legal counsel. They once in a while, I, I think they've had maybe two visits uh, with Canadian consulate officials. They haven't been able to speak to any of their family. They are reportedly kept in small rooms where the lights are on 24-7, and God knows what else is going on to those two Canadians. And in this, while all of that's going on, we're supposed to roll out the red carpet at the UBCM and take these people's money and rub shoulders with them and let them talk to us about how great things are and how we should have this great relationship. Like, it's just, it astounds me. Yeah. Like, have you completely lost your moral compass where you can't see that that's wrong? And it's not only, I mean, it's certainly it's that, but it's the trade war they have against Canada right now. There, there's so many things where the government of China is acting in a way that is completely hostile to Canadians and, and our country's national interests. Now the so, president, the president of the UBCM, as you know, Brad is is a Kamloops counselor. He's probably listening right yes. now. If I had to guess, I would guess Arjun Singh is extremely conflicted on this because I I believe he's spoken out about China in the past. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think UBCM should cancel the event? Uh, absolutely, I don't see how they how they can't if they uh, if they want to maintain their their previous I think um, strong reputation as a. Uh, an organization that does good work that allows mayors and councillors to come together and work together and work with the province to to address the issues that are important in our communities, then then they have to cancel this. Uh, and I've spoken to uh, Arjun about this, and you know I, I appreciate that he's in the leadership position at UBCM and he has to represent the organization. But you know, to, to those members of the UBCM who have made this decision. You know, I just say, take a long look in the mirror. And, and I just, I don't understand how you can possibly justify this at the best of times, let alone at a time when this uh, country's government, China, is in, engaged in so many actions that are completely hostile to our national interests. Mm -hmm. um, it's just completely unnecessary for them to be engaged in this, you know, cash for access scheme. And that's exactly what it is. I mean, yeah. people want to dress it up. Oh, they sponsor reception. <laughs> they give you a check. Yeah. In exchange, you give them access to mayors and city councillors. That's thing, what it is. One of the things that caught my eye when I was reading the province article uh, when I first tuned into the story was, uh, I believe it was Michael Smith, who, who said to Arjun, listen, how much money have you guys got from China? And Arjun Singh replied, well, it's sort of UBCM policy not to discuss that. I thought that was crossing a line. I think UBCM as a local government organization ought to be transparent about that kind of stuff. What say you? Without question. I mean, it's a, this is not a private organization. It's an organization that exists for local government. Tax, taxpayers foot the bill here on all this stuff. You know, um, municipalities pay a fee to be a part of the UBCM. Where do you think that money comes from? Taxpayers. Yeah. So the idea that oh, we're not going to disclose how much money we get from uh, from a foreign government or from the government of China is just absolutely unacceptable.
Uh, I mean, I don't know how they think they get away with that. <laughs> you know, in what world is that okay? Yeah. 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 Uh, so, I mean, they well, can try and justify it all they want, but, I mean, people are, are, you know, I think people are having a very strong reaction to this. It was entirely predictable, by the way. That's the other thing. Um, you know, they have they have done themselves a disservice by not listening to those of us who have raised concerns in the past about this. Um, I spoke to uh, Mr. Singh back when I was sworn in as mayor of the city of Port Coquitlam in November, and I articulated to him at that time what my concerns were and why. I wrote a letter to the UBC um, executive, again, laying out very clearly, I thought, why this is unethical, uh, irresponsible, and in my opinion, completely at odds with our responsibility as locally elected officials. And and so, you know, they should not be surprised that people are responding the way they are. Yeah, we're we're out of time, Brad, but uh, number one, I've invited Arjun on the show. I'm hopeful to get him on this week, and we'll see if we can get a definitive answer on this. And number two, uh, thank you so much for taking a few minutes out of your day. It's it's certainly a very interesting issue, and, and uh, I'm a little snide here, but I don't think China's doing it on any great love for local governments or, or the, the or Democrat or democracy as a whole. So uh, obviously sure. something's up here, but I, I think it, optics alone, I think this thing should be cancelled. Thanks for having me on. I think you hit the nail on the head. You have to ask what's in it for them. Yeah, absolutely. Brad, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks, The uh, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, Brad West, raising the concern about an annual event sponsored by the government of China at the Union of BC Municipalities Convention. And as I said, I've invited uh, UBCM President and Councillor Arjun Singh on the show this week, and hopefully we can get him on and uh, put this to him. That's it for today's show. We'll see you on the Woodford Show right on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shuswa from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.